Welcome back to the New Books and Political Science podcast. This is the first podcast in the 2017 year. I'm Heath Brown, and I have the real pleasure to welcome back to the podcast Dave Karp, who has a new book that he's going to tell us about. Dave, how are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I've been looking forward to having you come back. Welcome back to the New Books and Political Science podcast. This is the first podcast in the 2017 year. I'm Heath Brown, and I have the real pleasure to welcome back to the podcast Dave Karp, who has a new book that he's going to tell us about. Dave, how are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I've been looking forward to having you come back. Before we get to the new book and its name, why don't you just tell us just a little bit about what's been happening to you since your last visit? Um, Just give us an update. Sure. So, uh, it, with my last visit and the move on effect, I had just moved to George Washington University, uh, your alma mater, um, and had started there in their uh, School of Political Communication, the, the School of Media and Public Affairs. Um, so I've been there for five years now. I happily earned tenure. And I've been spending that time, particularly being here located in Washington, D.C., trying to dig deeper into a lot of the, the topics and organizations that I had studied with my, my first book, The Move on Effect. Uh, and that turned into the second book, Analytic Activism. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations on tenure and congrats, congratulations on Analytic Activism, Digital Listening and the New Political Strategy, again published by Oxford University Press in 2016. Let's talk about this book. Um, in the book, you talk a lot about listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you mean by digital listening? And, and is it nearly as as creepy and worrisome as as it might sound? (laughs) Uh, So let me take those two questions in turn. Um, I think most of the conversation that we've been having about Internet politics, uh, both amongst journalists and amongst uh, academics, has been about digital speech. So we have been speaking about, we've been talking about uh, things like retweets, we've been talking about uh, the ways that people can engage through online petitions, uh, Facebook organizations, and sort of digital networks rising up and forming new types of protest. And missing from that, I think, when we talk about that digital speech, and a lot of the literature has really been focused on whether networks are kind of replacing organizations. Um, my first book was saying, no, it's not uh, networks versus organizations. We actually see a new generation of different organizations and using communications technologies to engage their members in new ways. Um, but the most prominent feature of that is when we are speaking online, we're also leaving these digital traces. And political organizations are using these digital traces through analytics in order to shape new strategic objects that help them to make decisions that they couldn't otherwise make. Um, the origin of this whole book actually came up just after I had finished writing The Move On Effect, before it had been published. I was at a practitioner conference called Netroots Nation and was about to go to lunch with a, a friend of mine who is the head of a digital nonprofit organization. And she and another executive director were got into this sort of uh, tactical discussion about a, a TV ad that they were about to put out in the state of Wisconsin. This was during the Scott Walker recall effort. And I listened to them sort of fall into a pattern that I'm very used to seeing both as an academic and also from my earlier days when I was an activist, where each of them had different visions for this ad uh, and different theories for why tactically it would work. They had different ideas for who the hero of the ad should be. And one of them started to present their argument, and the second offered their counter-argument. And 
these conversations tend to go on forever. They tend to be won uh, essentially by the person who can talk the longest or the person who's going to provide the, the funding. Um, so they get into this conversation. They're both equals. I know it's going to go on for forever. I'm hungry. And I'm kind of trying to find a way to politely get myself out of this so I can go get some food. And instead, something interesting happened, which is they each presented their argument. And then the one of them said, well, let's test it. And the other one said, yeah, we'll test it. And that struck me as actually important and, and new and different from the conversations that we're having. Because and, and what did they mean by test it? What they meant by test it was uh, that they were going to put together different versions of the ad. They were going to, I think most likely what they're going to do in that case um, was send variant versions of the ad, probably through an A-B test, to random subsets of their list and see which one generated the most money, generated the most clicks, or through some imperfect means, uh, demonstrated uh, more popularity or impact. Uh, and importantly there, as social scientists, that, that reads as a pretty bad experiment. Most of this testing is actually pretty rough and imperfect. Um, but what it's providing is, is a signal that they can use in order to make, decision, make imperfect decisions. Um, and decision-making has always been imperfect and messy. It's still imperfect and messy today. But the data that we're using to make those strategic decisions is changing because of digital media. And that's something that I haven't seen discussed or captured and, and struck me as pretty important, particularly because as the digital landscape is changing, um, the, the tactical repertoires of social movement organizations are changing as well. And the way the lear they learn, the way they innovate, depends on a bunch of messy and imperfect signals, Some of many of which are things like, what, what's popular with foundations these days? So what are foundations going to fund? Uh, or, you know, what new startups are going to pitch them? What services? Um, but internally, their ability to harvest digital signals and use that to sort through the mess and come up with new strategic ideas strikes me as a, a pretty important and underexplored part of the digital landscape for activism. Now, now these traces or what you call footprints, mm -hmm. in practical terms, what are we talking about? Are these things that, that you and I might kind of conventionally know about? Or what form do these takes for the, the organizations like the two that you just mentioned? Mm -hmm. um, so let me offer a theoretical distinction, which is between what I would call internal and external analytics. Uh, external analytics is something that you and I have access to. Um, you know, as, as authors, I'm able to go on uh, Amazon's Author Central every week and see who has bought my book through Amazon. Uh, that's a type of analytics. Uh, I sometimes blog at Medium. Medium sends me a weekly uh, thing indicating which articles have gotten which clicks. Uh, all of us researchers now have our work up on things like academia. Uh, what is it, edu, uh, and ResearchGate. Those also send you analytics. Um, and well, that's the data that we have the easiest access to. And there's there's Twitter analytics, there's Facebook analytics, uh, Google analytics. All of that is public-facing material. The more valuable stuff tends to be internal analytics, which is analytics that the organization is conducting on its own website or on its own member base. Um, so the simplest example of this is probably the A-B test, which the Obama campaign made so famous back in 2008 and 2012, um, as documented by Daniel Kreese's books. Um, And what the, what the Obama campaign sort of famously did with their email, that this was started by other organizations before them, uh, is they would send out to random subsets of their email list 
two emails with different headlines or uh, some other single variation in the email. Uh, and they would have some outcome variable they were tracking, things like click-through or things like donations or sign-ups. Uh, and they would then use that in order to find out through what I called in my first book, Path of Democratic Feedback, what their membership wants or what their revealed preferences are. Um, so that's, that's a type of internal analytics, which is data that the organization can harvest because it has actually decided what are the metrics we care about, what are we trying to, to gather data on, and they can use that to shape their decision making. Uh, and while that's a simple example, it can also get much more complicated than that. I, uh, you've got another question. Go for it. Yeah, no, and, and let me just sort of continue sort of along that line. And, and to quote something from Doki, you write, and I quote, lacking a clear strategic analysis, digital listening can do more harm than good. Mm-hmm. And you continue that strategic analysis is particularly difficult for activist organizations. Yes. So what is the potential harm? And what is the special challenge for politically active groups? Um, so let me answer that, that the, the second question and then the first. Uh, the challenge for activist organizations is that politics outside of elections is theoretically much more complicated than politics in elections. And most of the analytics is either being developed in the business community or within electoral campaigns. Uh, electoral campaigns are really conceptually simple because we have a set end date and a set victory condition. Uh, we knew on November 8th who the next president of the United States would be, um, and we knew the rules. Uh, we, we ended up knowing very well the, the particular rules that helped to decide all of that. Um, if you're working instead on climate change or if you're working on gun safety regulations, uh, there is no end date and there is no clear victory condition. And so that opens up a wider range of questions that you're going to use analytics and digital listening to answer, because you're not just trying to figure out what's the best way to run, raise money. You're also figuring out how do we build power and create leverage from the membership base or supporter base that we have. Um, so that's the reason why it's more complicated. And related to that, the, the danger, uh, there's a saying from uh, behavioral scientist uh, Dan Ariely, behavior uh, economist. Um, who uh, he says that you are what you measure. The, the danger is that you probably aren't what you have trouble measuring. So for organizations that are trying to build a broad social movement to confront deep societal problems, um, it can be very easy for them to figure out what petition is going to be growthiest, is, is going to add the most names to our email database and substitute that growthiness metric for power-building metrics that are harder to capture, and so they end up having to, to give up on it. Um, this, in the, in the book, in Chapter 5 of the book, I refer to this as the analytics frontier. Um, and, and that's because it's a, a theoretical frontier, and there are a lot of advocacy organizations that are currently trying to figure out what the right metrics are for them to be building their organizations around. What are the things that they need to track uh, and even developing new technologies in order to track them effectively. Um, so this doesn't mean that digital listening is going to lead organizations towards uh, focusing on the, the wrong things and most easily tracked things. But it does mean that organizations need to make sure that they're using digital listening in order to help them strategize better as opposed to using it in order to avoid strategic questions altogether. Um, and that's a real danger because the appeal of 
the internet is often that uh, through like machine learning or through analytics, uh, we'll find right answers and can avoid all of the messy, hard stuff. Uh, if in fact strategy is still going to be messy and hard, then that means instead of automating the problem and saying, well, we're just going to trust the numbers, the numbers must be right, organizations instead actually have to, have to ask real hard questions about, are these the right things that we're measuring to begin with? Let's move on a little bit to something uh, that you measured in the book. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I think to a, to a casual watcher, um, change.org and move on are, are somewhat hard to differentiate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if you could distinguish these two digital politics operations from each other in terms of uh, what they do and then also the deeper argument that you make about the differences in their their um, fundamental orientations to the world. Sure. Um, so yeah, the, the reason why they often look so similar to people is that both of them provide open petition platforms. Uh, if you want to start a digital petition against some injustice, uh, the user interface that you will find at petitions.moveon.org and at change.org uh, are really quite similar. There, there's like small tweaks. I wrote a, a book chapter, not for this book, but for an edited volume a few years ago, comparing their their uh, user setups. Um, but it, really, you can go to either one and start a petition if you want to. Uh, this was driven home for me several years ago. I'm a, a fan of the Washington Wizards basketball team, uh, and I sometimes go to fan blogs. Uh, and there was a petition that got sent around to, uh, uh, in a post on a fan blog uh, saying that we should fire the, the coach of the wizard, sign here. And it was a moveon.org petition. And I was like, now this is really bringing together my research mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> with my uh, social life. Um, so that's a petition that could go at change.org. It could go at moveon.org. Um, but they, they seem on the surface to be quite similar. Um, but the two organizations actually have very different philosophies of what they're trying to do and very different business models. Uh, so moveon.org is a nonprofit organization. Uh, they are funded by member donations. So they have about 8 million members and they send uh, one or two emails per month asking those members to chip in uh, either to their general fund or to some specific campaign action. Um, and change.org uh, is a for-profit organization, though it's a, a, a B Corp. Uh, which means that its goal is both social good and making money. It's not solely trying to make money for investors. Um, now, this is interesting. During the time that I was conducting the research, and I spent six months just gathering the, the top ten featured petitions of the two websites in order to see the ways in which their different philosophies were guiding their use of analytics and, and, and leading them to promote different types of petitions. I was just curious, you know, if you saw politics through change.org or through MoveOn, how different would the political landscape look? Um, during those six months, the business model of change.org was a lead generation business model. Uh, I, I nicknamed this in the, bu- in the book, a uh, reverse mullet business model, that it's a party in the front with a business in the back. Um, mm-hmm. You could also call it a reverse speakeasy, which works better when you're talking to international audiences that have not heard of the mullet haircut. But for Americans, it's a reverse mullet. Um, the reverse mullet or the reverse speakeasy, it is up front, a user-generated petition site where anyone can go and start a change.org petition. Um, and if that petition ends up being popular, it can get boosted through their algorithms, sent to people, uh, sent, sent people's inboxes, promoted through Facebook and through Twitter, uh, and promoted uh, on the front page as well to get additional exposure. Uh, change.org petitions uh, often receive hundreds of thousands, even millions of signatures. Um, 
And the way that they make money is after people have started those petitions and, and various people sign it, uh, after you signed a couple of petitions, they then offer you a sponsored petition that can come from an organization like National Wildlife Federation uh, or the ACLU or the Sierra Club. And if you sign that petition, then you're added to that organization's email list. That, that organization can then email you and uh, ask you for money. And those organizations will pay change.org for those email addresses, those those new leads. Um, and that core business model promotes a focus on growthy petitions. So change.org now has, I think, 160 million uh, users worldwide. Uh, I think it's over 50 million or so within the United States. Uh, it's much, much larger than moveon.org. And in the book, what I'm lo- I was looking at was the types of petitions that these two open petition platforms promote. Um, now, this is all interesting because change.org actually, after the book was sent off to the publisher, has now completely revamped their business model. They've gotten rid of the reverse millet business model. Um, they are now instead going to be a crowdfunding platform uh, where they're inviting people after they've started petitions to organize additional events uh, and invite people to sign those petitions to help fund those events. And they'll take a small service fee from fundraising through the site. Uh, that is, why, the, why the shift? Um, I don't have interview data on that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, they've also laid off about a third of their staff. So my expectation, my hunch, uh, is that they eventually, like when you when you are first bringing in people signing social petitions, they are most likely people who are used to signing petitions and taking political actions and giving money. And as your membership base expi- expands beyond those usual suspects, you start reaching people who are whose propensity to give is lower and lower. So my guess is that what happened is change.org essentially was now producing names that weren't giving money uh, or weren't likely to give once they'd been generated as leads. And so the lead generation business simply wasn't making money enough anymore. Um, I don't have that through interview data though. So it's just my hunch at this moment. Yep. Yep. Um, but that said, what I found in the book, uh, and it's, it's a comparison that I think is still instructive, even if the, the two mo- the model is now shifted. Um, but the comparison in the book, I spent six months looking at the petitions that uh, were doing well enough on these two sites that they decided to elevate them uh, to their front pages. Um, and over those six months, there were a total of five petitions, no, a total of six petitions that were about the same issue on the same day. Um, now, sometimes I say five, sometimes I say six. That's because one of the six petitions, uh, there was a petition at change.org to uh, uh, one of the guys from Duck Dynasty <clears throat> had been suspended for an interview that he gave where he said a bunch of racist and homophobic stuff. And fans of the show started a petition on change.org saying, bring, bring him back, bring the show back. Uh, and then the next day, uh, people at Move On started a petition saying, no, no, keep it off the air. So he had dueling p- petitions in one case. But besides that, it was about once per month that if you were viewing politics through change.org uh, versus Move On, you were actually seeing the same political agenda. Um, and this is surprising to me. I think it should be surprising to social scientists because in general, the, the assumption that we have here is that if citizens are engaging with the same media system, uh, they're seeing sort of the same problem stream in John Kingdon's old terms, uh, and then they're reacting to it by spontaneously going to a petition site online and starting a social petition, then we would, I would expect 
a fair percentage, a pretty large percentage of over, topical overlap between the two sites. Um, but what seems to be happening is that since the two sites have these different philosophies and different business models, um, the, the, the places where they put their finger on the scale, the places where they decide to help and promote a petition and help spur it to go viral, um, is MoveOn is essentially using their social petition platform to promote citizens getting involved in what we would normally think of as American politics. So as an example, when the Voting Rights Act was struck down, uh, there was a half dozen petitions listed on their top 10 list uh, at the state level saying, urge your representative to uh, pass the Voting Rights Act and, and fix what was just broken by uh, the Supreme Court. Um, during those same weeks, at change.org, you don't see any social petitioning around the Voting Rights Act. And instead, what you see is social petitioning around cultural issues. Um, now, sometimes these are issues of racism or sexism or homophobia. Uh, and other times, they're fan petitions to get like TV shows back on the air. My favorite example of this, there's a, a cartoon called The Family Guy. And uh, there was a, a cartoon dog in The Family, family Guy who had been killed off uh, in one episode. And... Several hundred thousand, I think it was about 200,000 people signed a petition urging Seth MacFarlane, the creator of Family Guy, to bring the dog back. Um, two weeks later, the dog was, in fact, brought, brought back, and so they were able to declare that a victory for their campaign, even though the script had already been written and submitted before they started the social petitioning campaign. Um, so when we talk about online petitions and we talk about digital speech, the conversation usually revolves around questions of collectivism and things like the family guy petition get brought up as objects of analysis. When we say, you know, look, there's all these people spontaneously aggregating online, but what difference does it really make when their campaigns are to the creators of cartoons, not to Congress? Uh, and those creators aren't necessarily listening to petitions. Uh, and I just think that that converse, the whole collectivism conversation is kind of missing the point. Because there are organizations in the backdrop, organizations like Change.org and MoveOn, that are making decisions based on uh, organizational incentives for what types of petitions they should promote and help to spur uh, in their virality. Uh, and they're doing things like A-B testing in order to figure out what kind of language is going to help these petitions reach their largest possible audience. Uh, and they're also doing traditional strategic moves like connecting those petitions with members of the mainstream media so they get coverage and they become media objects. Um, so there's all of this sort of nuanced organizational work that is informed by organizational learning processes that are changing because of digital listening and the new data that we have through analytics. Um, but when we're only focusing on the speech, we're not focusing on the listening, I think we lose that entire strategic lens. Now, if change.org and, and move on are relatively well known and sort of of the, the, the past or our current moment, you, you describe Upworthy mm -hmm. as the future of digital news. Um, is it also the future of digital political activism? I wonder if maybe you could explain what Upworthy is all about and how it relates to this larger story that you're telling about the, the changing nature of political activism in the country. Sure. Um, so Upworthy, it, it, it's fascinating. Upworthy a few years ago, uh, seem to be eating the entire internet. Uh, today it is, I think, less prominent, though, uh, it still has about, I think, probably about 20 million unique visitors per month, which puts it on par with, say, a CNN.com. Um, 
And Upworthy was actually founded by a couple of alumni of MoveOn.org, including Eli Pariser, who, after being MoveOn's executive director, wrote a book called The Filter Bubble, uh, which has done very well. It's kind of an update on Cass Sunstein's Republic.com. Uh, it's, I think, better cited than mo- by academics than most academic works. Uh, it's, a, it's quite a good book. Um, so they started this organization, Upworthy, um, based on actually a trial run that they ran at MoveOn.org called Share Machine. And what they did with Share Machine was look around the internet for uh, socially progressive videos, videos with a, a political perspective, um, but not necessarily focused directly about politics. Uh, and they, they found videos and then they tried to find a way to repackage them so they could get a bigger audience. Uh, and most famously, uh, they found, uh, there's a, a guy named Zach Walls who had been raised by two lesbian parents uh, and he was also an Eagle Scout and a uh, you know, great kid. Uh, and when he was in high school, he gave uh, testimony to the Iowa State Senate uh, for a committee hearing that was uh, anti-gay marriage. Uh, and it was an impassioned, moving speech. Uh, it was captured and put on uh, YouTube. Uh, he had sort of a, a brief 15 minutes of fame. He went on the Ellen show and she told him that he was a, a real hero. Um, and then, you know, that 15 minutes was over and we went and focused on the next viral sensation. Um, and Share Machine found that video and it was titled something like Zach Walls Speaks About Family, which isn't particularly catchy if you don't know who Zach Walls is and no one does. And most people don't spend their time trolling YouTube for old videos of Iowa State Senate hearings. Um, but they found this. And they repackaged it with the headline, uh, I think it was something like, two lesbians had a baby and this is what they got. Uh, and it basically broke the internet, got over 10 million views, um, which showed that if you play with the headlines right, if you play with the packaging right, and in the social web, you can get this tr- far more attention than you otherwise would. It, it expands the audience for political content far more than we are used to. Uh, And one of the reasons why I have a chapter about it in the book is that I think that points to the ways that the social web is different, even from the Internet that we were studying and I was studying five or ten years ago. Uh, The Internet that we engage with through Google is generally an Internet in which in order to find something, you have to be searching for it. Uh, The Internet that we are now engaging with through Facebook and Twitter is one in which if you are engaging with something, you probably discovered it because someone in your social graph shared it, shared it or like it, liked it uh, or forwarded it. Uh, and so that social sharing allows for the spread of information uh, with different dynamics. And Upworthy several years ago was tapping into that. Uh, and then they, they basically took that share machine experiment and broadened it into a company that was trying to find, on, find audiences for progressive political content. Um, and they kind of tapped into a moment where Facebook's algorithms we're rewarding certain behaviors like uh, sharing of video content with catchy headlines. Uh, they came up with these curiosity gap, gap headlines that uh, most people will still uh, remember and, and maybe cringe at, um, you know, sort of the you won't believe what happens next type of headlines. Um, and they were running A-B tests on all of their content to figure out what works best. So for a while, these curiosity gap headlines were working best, and that drove a lot of attention. Um, now, to, to go back to your question, um, I wouldn't say that that's the future of activism, but I would say I talk in chapter one of the book about what I call a media theory of movement power that I think all activist tactics gain some of their power, some some element of their power 
from their alignment with the existing media system or the media system of the day. Uh, I think a helpful way to think about this is to think about the tactics of the civil rights movement over 50 years ago now. Um, the, the leaders of the civil rights movement were brilliantly strategic in figuring out how they could design tactics that would fit well with the broadcast media system that they had in that day. Um, so you think of the, the Bloody Sunday march. It wasn't just that these people were courageously marching through Selma. Uh, it wasn't just that the sheriff in Selma was overreacting so strongly because those moments of protest and violence had happened for decades and decades previously. It was that they were doing that staged in front of three television cameras that were then going to bring them the entire national audience. Because if you had those three television stations, you had the entire nation. Um, and that was strategic. That was designed. They understood the affordances of that media environment and they were tapping into it. And if we're going to learn the strategic lessons of movements past, then I think it's important not just to say, how do you replicate tactics and are tactics as effective today, but to also think about how do you replicate strategy and replicate that process of thinking through what is today's media environment allow and support. So Upworthy is, I think, a, a very interesting example of the way that activist organizations today now have incentives to create content that can reach broader audiences through social sharing, to create shareable content. And those incentives weren't there 10 years ago. They weren't yet there 30 years ago because the media environment of sharing wasn't there. And by comparison, the media environment of industrial broadcast, where you can capture the entire nation just by getting a few paper, like the, a few national papers, uh, and by getting the three television stations, that's not there either. So the Upworthy chapter is there to show how analytics is changing the media environment. And that then is activism adjacent because of the ways that it informs activist strategy. Yeah, the, the book again, Analytic Activism, Digital Listening and the New Political Strategy, published by Oxford University Press this year and available widely. Dave, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Heath. 